concise Christology and a rich source of truth about the person and the work of Jesus. And we've looked at three of these already, or two of them. I am the bread of life. Um, back in John chapter 6, I'm the light of the world, as in John 8 and 9. And then tonight, uh, I am the door, which again may be the simplest of all of these. Let me uh, read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 for us. Uh, the last part of this will probably be really familiar to you. <clears throat> Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. One of my uh, favorite stories about a door is uh, a story you may have heard before. I'll share it with you. It's uh, about a man that was driving down the road, and he, he breaks down near a monastery. And he goes to the monastery and knocks on the door and says, My car broke down. Do you think I could stay the night? And the monks graciously accept him and feed him dinner. They even fix his car. And as the man tries to fall asleep, he hears a strange sound. The next morning, he asks the monks what the sound was, but they say, we can't tell you you're not a monk. The man is disappointed, but thanks to him anyway and goes upon his merry way. Some years later, the same man breaks down in front of the same monastery. The monks accept him, feed him, fix his car. That night, he hears the same strange noise he'd heard years before. The next morning, he asks what it is, but the monks reply, we can't tell you you're not a monk. So the man says, all right, all right, I'm, I'm dying to know if the only way I can find out what that sound was is to become a monk. What do I do to become a monk? And they reply, you must travel the earth and tell us how many blades of grass there are and the exact number of sand pebbles. When you find these numbers, you'll become a monk. So the man finally sets about his task, and 45 years later, he returns and knocks on the door of the monastery. He says, I've traveled the earth and found what you've asked for. 145,236,284,232 blades of grass. There's 231,281,219,999,382 sand pebbles of the earth. The monks say, congratulations, you're now a monk. We shall now show you the way to the sound. The monks lead the man to a wooden door where the head monk says, the sound is right behind that door. The man reaches for the knob, but the door's locked. And he says, may I have the key? And the monks give him the key, and he opens the door. Behind the wooden door is another door made of stone. The man demands the key to the stone door. The monks give him the key, and he opens it, only to find a door made of ruby. He demands another key from the monks who provide it. Behind that door is another door, this one made of sapphire. So it went until the man at last had gone through doors of emerald, silver, topaz, amethyst. Finally, they said, this is the last key to the last door. 
The man is relieved to no end. He unlocks the door, turns the knob, and behind that door, he's amazed to find the source of that strange sound. But I can't tell you what it is because you're not a monk. (laughs) Now, aren't you glad Jesus wasn't like that, right? And his uh, teaching about uh, the door. Jesus wasn't like those monks. Um, He used the image of a door to teach truth so simply, I believe, that anybody can understand it. And that's what Jesus wanted to do. He wasn't trying to be secret or to be esoteric in any way. There's no simpler symbol, maybe in all the world, and I think this is uh, the simplest of all the I am statements, that Jesus is the door. Uh, Woodrow Kroll, in his book on uh, the I am statements, he says, I've always been amazed at how profound the Lord Jesus was in His simplicity. He didn't talk about things that were far-fetched or fanciful. His speech was plain, down-to-earth, understandable. He says, everybody knows what a door is. Doors come in many varieties. There's front doors, back doors, side doors, closet doors, barn doors, church doors, screen doors, storm doors, and more. Some are small, like the one to, to my economy rental car. Some are plain, others highly decorated. There's French doors, Dutch doors, double doors. Doors have even give, given rise to a whole vocation. Who hasn't heard of a door-to-door salesman? Now, people today probably haven't, but uh, back in the day. Uh, doors have lent their name to a host of door-related items, door jams, doorknobs, doorkeepers, door prizes, door stops, doorbells. If you get uh, bored, go next door and chat with your neighbor. Or if that doesn't work, you can go hiking to the great outdoors. He said the possibilities are endless. So we're, everybody's familiar with a door, but, but as simple and, and common as a door is, even doors sometimes can be confusing. Now, this is my favorite door story, I'll tell you. When we're, when we're over in Israel, our last time that we were there, um, our guide, Ronnie Cohen, sometimes there's downtime when you're driving in the bus and, and, and all, and so he'll tell some stories. And he starts telling stories, funny stories, about people who've taken trips with him to Israel. And one of the funniest ones he said of all time was a lady who'd never traveled before. She'd never been in a hotel or anything, and she goes on an Israel trip. And the first night they're there, she goes to her hotel room, and he happens to still be at the hotel, and she calls down to the front desk, and the lady at the front desk says, well, yeah, I'm not sure I can help you. So she calls Ronnie over there, the guide, and he begins to talk to this lady. She says, I'm in my room, but I don't know how to get out of the room. And he says, well, he goes, you know, there's a, a few doors there. Just open the doors and you can get out. And she says, well, I, I tried the door over here to my left, and that's the door to the bathroom. And he said, okay, well, there should be another door over to your right. And she says, well, yeah, I tried that door, and it's the closet. And Donnie, Ronnie says, well, you know, there's another door right there. There should be another large door. And she said, yeah, I see it. And he said, well, why didn't you try it? She says, well, it has a sign hanging on it that says, do not disturb. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, doors can create a lot of interesting things. Even something as simple as a door can be confusing. But tonight I want to look here at John 10 at this passage uh, under the three headings you can see there tonight, the setting and then the saying of Jesus, this I am the door statement, and then the significance of it. Now, again, I want to mention this. Some of you may not have been here, and if you were, it's still good to to review this. John's gospel Chapter 1, you have the prologue and kind of the calling of some of Jesus' disciples. And uh, so chapter 1 is kind of set apart a little bit. And then I've mentioned to you all before that chapters 2 through 4 are called the Cana cycle. 
As Jesus does his first sign, turning water to wine at Cana in chapter 2, then you have several things that happen. Chapter 3 in between is the Nicodemus event. Uh, you have the Jesus with the woman at the well. But then at the end of chapter 4 is the, third, the second sign, the healing of the nobleman's son, and it's back at Cana of Galilee. So he goes from Cana to Cana in chapters 2 through 4. And then I've mentioned this as well a couple of, the last time I was with you, that in chapters 5 through 10, it's Jesus and the feasts, Jesus and the Jewish feasts. Again, John's gospel focuses on the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the uh, synoptics focused on his Galilean ministry. But John's gospel focuses on the times when Jesus would come from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the feast. Again, chapter 5, verse 1 says there was a feast of the Jews. Um, Chapter 6, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And there in chapter 6, you have uh, the bread of life discourse, Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, and it looks back to the wilderness, and Jesus uh, picturing himself as the bread come down from heaven, the fulfillment ultimately of that. Then in chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. So Passover was in the spring, Tabernacles would be that next fall, uh, the fall of A.D. 32, the last fall uh, of Jesus' earthly life. And remember last time we looked that they had this big mourning uh, ritual they would go through where they would bring water uh, there, and it pictured the the water coming from the rock in the wilderness. Um, As they're pouring that out on the last great day when there was a great hush that would fall over the crowd, Jesus says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And then that evening of that final day of tabernacles, the other great, the other great uh, evening rituals, they'd light these four 75-foot-tall menorah there in the, treasury, uh, in the treasury there in the court of women. And Jesus, that's when he makes his great statement there is probably these menorah now are out. Uh, they're, they're not uh, burning anymore. The wicks aren't burning. He makes the great statement, I am uh, the light of the world in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Then there's a long discourse between Jesus and and the others there. That's often called the Feast of Tabernacles discourse. Then you come to chapter 9, where you mentioned this last time, where Jesus gives an illustration of His power to bring light out of the darkness. It's an illustration that He is the light of the world because He heals a man born blind. Now, I want to run through chapter 9 because chapter 9 is the setting for chapter 10. All these chapters are related together like this. So let me just go through chapter 9. Notice it says in 9.1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asking, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus says it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, all all sickness ultimately is caused by sin, right? I mean, all sickness is caused by sin that's in the world, but not all sickness is caused by personal sin. In other words, not all sickness is caused by something we did ourselves. So we can say that sin is the cause of sickness ultimately, but not every sickness is caused directly by a person's sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's to glorify God. 
So Jesus spits on the ground, um, he makes clay, he puts it on the man's eyes, he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which like I said last time, when they'd go get the water for the Feast of Tabernacles, that's where they got it from was the pool of Siloam. So this man is healed. And uh, some people here ask him, uh, some, some people who know him ask him, were saying to him, uh, how were your eyes open? And he said, the man who's called Jesus made clay there in verse 11, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam. So all this man knows about G- Jesus is his name. Now, the plot thickens in verse 13 because the Pharisees, are, they bring the man to the Pharisees who was formerly blind. And the real firestorm is triggered in verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We know immediately now there's going to be a controversy ignited by this. And again, the Pharisees were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Now, think about that. He just healed a man born blind, and they're worrying about he can't be from God because he did this on the Sabbath. And think of the irony of that. It says there was a division among them. Some of them them were, were questioning these things. And they said, therefore, to the blind man, again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he'd been born blind. So they're trying to get to the bottom. They don't think the guy's really been born blind. So they go in and call mom and dad in. And they said, is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered to them, says, we, do not, we, we know this is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, or opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they're afraid of the Jews, man. They, they knew that anybody who believed in Jesus was getting kicked out of the synagogue. And um, it, says, it says that down the end of verse 22. If anyone confessed Christ, he's put out of the synagogue. Ex sunagoge, kicked out. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they called the man who'd been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now, basically what that means in Judaism is they put the guy under oath. Kind of like someone today saying, you know, hold up your right hand, you know, put your right hand on the Bible, you know, hold up your hand and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. So he put him under oath, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he said, whether he's a sinner, I don't know, but one thing I do know, where I was blind, I see. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? I don't know who the guy is, but I know I was blind and I know I can see. They therefore said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Why do you, why, uh, do you want to become disciples of his too? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. Now, this, the man seizes upon this statement when they say, they, we don't know where he's from. And the man said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. If you guys are the leaders of of Israel, you ought to know where this guy's from if he's going around healing people blind from birth. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now notice he starts out just knowing Jesus' name. Then he says he's a prophet. Now he says he's from God. And verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins. What they're looking back to is he was born blind. And to Pharisees, being born blind was evidence that he was cursed by God. So notice they've run out of logical arguments now, so they just attack the guy and say, you were born in sins, and you're teaching us, and they put him out. So kick him out of the synagogue. He's gone. He's ex-sunagoge. He's put out of, uh, of Judaism. When Jesus heard that they'd put him out, he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Again, this is another statement of Jesus' deity, because if you're not God, you shouldn't let somebody worship you, right? And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said that if you're blind, you'd have no sin. That is, if you recognized that and confessed it, you'd be forgiven. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Now notice chapter 10 verse 1 follows right on the heels of that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who doesn't enter by the door of the sheepfold and climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. So this whole story in chapter 9 of the healing of the blind man is the context now or the setting for John chapter 10. And Jesus gives an allegory here, an illustration. He takes something very familiar to everyone in ancient Israel because there was no more uh, familiar picture to them than a shepherd. So he employs a very simple symbol to convey his message. And this now is often called the Good Shepherd Discourse. So the third and fourth I am's are kind of tied together in this passage. I'm the door, and then I am the good shepherd. Now, just to look at chapter 10 for a moment, in verses 1 to 6, Jesus is going to tell the, the people there what he's doing, and that is he's gathering a flock And he's still doing that today. That's what Jesus is about, gathering a flock. He's gathering his people. Verses 7 through 10 will tell us why he's gathering that flock, and that is to give them abundant life. And then verses 11 to 18 will tell us how he is gathering that flock, and he's gathering that flock by laying down his life and taking it up again through his death and through his resurrection is how he gathers his flock. Now, In in verses 1 to 5, Jesus here is going to differentiate himself from the false shepherds who are the Pharisees who just kicked this man out. So he's contrasting the shepherd himself with the strangers. They're a bunch of imposters is what he's saying. Because what had happened is the false shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees who claimed to be the shepherds of Israel, they didn't care for this man. They mistreated him, and they threw him out. But Jesus, the good shepherd, found this man, and he brought him into his fold. So that's the the background here. Now, when he says here, truly I say to you, he who doesn't enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up another way is a thief and a robber. And what he's saying to the Pharisees is, that's you. You guys are a bunch of thieves and robbers. You're not coming in through the door. 
But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls them by name and leads them out. Now, back in that day, there were two different kinds of sheepfolds. There were public ones, and then there were private ones more out in the field. The public ones were in villages. And when they were, the ones that were in or near villages, what would happen is a lot of different shepherds would bring their flocks into that one sheepfold at night for safekeeping. And the sheepfold was watched by a porter or a doorkeeper, and the sheep were brought in there at night. And then the shepherds would be admitted in the morning into the sheepfold, and they'd call their sheep by name. Now think about that. I mean, that's a beautiful picture. you got all these sheep mixed together, and some guy comes in there into the door, and he's admitted in because he's a shepherd, and he calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out, and they follow him. And the next guy comes and calls his sheep, and they, he leads them out. And so that's the, the, the picture here that Jesus is giving. But out in the countryside where shepherds would go and, and lead their uh, uh, flocks for, for uh, uh, grazing and all of that, in those, the, the sheepfold was just a, a small little enclosure out in the countryside, and out there the shepherd just watched his own sheep. And the sheepfold here, the larger sheepfold, in, in this context, a sheepfold is Judaism. It's the dead Judaism that existed in Jesus' day. Now, what Jesus is saying here is you guys, uh, you, know, you Pharisees claim to be the shepherds, but you guys climb in over the walls. You don't come in through the door in the appointed way. And what Jesus is saying is, I came in the appointed way with the proper credentials. And when I came, uh, the doorkeeper opened to me. What this means is that Jesus came the appointed way and came through the door of the sheepfold. He came in fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah. Uh, John Philip says it like this. He says that the Lord Jesus was the genuine shepherd was evident. He'd entered by the door by the legitimate means of entry. He'd been born of a virgin. He'd been born in Bethlehem. He had come in the fullness of time. He came out of Egypt and was called God's son. His arrival had provoked the rage of the enemy. Thus, he was the right person, born in the right place, arriving at the right time, summoned from the right country, and attended by the right sign. So Jesus said, look, I, I, came, by, I came through the door, and the doorkeeper opened to me. And the doorkeeper here probably is John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist opened the, the door, opened the way to Jesus, and announced that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus says, look, uh, I enter by the door and I, because I'm a shepherd of the sheep. I came in the appointed way that the Old Testament said the Messiah would come. And the sheep hear my voice, and I call them by name, and, and I lead them out. When I put forth my own, they follow me. The sheep follow me because they know my voice. Now, what had happened is the man in John chapter 9 that Jesus had healed, born blind, he was one of Jesus' sheep. And Jesus was coming now to lead him out of the sheepfold of Judaism into his own flock. They'd kick the guy out. And Jesus is coming now as the good shepherd to lead this man out as one of his sheep who'd believed in him and to lead him out into his sheepfold. And the sheepfold that Jesus is forming today is the church. In fact, if you go on down to verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they'll become one flock with one shepherd. The other sheep that he has not of this fold are the Gentiles. So it says, I have other sheep not of this fold. So it, it's Jesus, uh, the church is his sheepfold that he's forming today. Now, Jesus here is talking about leading this guy out uh, of, the, of the restrictions of, of Judaism and the false uh, teachings that they held in that day. But notice verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what those things were which he'd been saying. So in verse 7, Jesus changes the figure. Um, he doesn't enter the door now as a shepherd. Now he is the door. Notice verse 7, therefore Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So Jesus is both the shepherd who leads his people out, but he's also uh, the door. Now, I've told this story before, but it's a beautiful old story. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan is, is, a lot of people have told this over the years, it comes primarily from G. Campbell Morgan, a conversation he had with a man named Sir George Adam Smith. He was a scholar who'd spent a lot of time in, in the Near East, and uh, he told, uh, uh, Sir, Sir George Adam Smith told Campbell Morgan a story about meeting a shepherd who showed him the fold where he kept the sheep. Now, again, this is not the big public fold, but this is the smaller fold with just some rocks around that are a, a real low fence where the shepherd kept his sheep when they were out in the field. And it was kind of just a, a, the four walls around it with a way in. And he said, is that where you go and take your sheep at night? And he said, yes, that's where we go. And he says, and inside there the sheep are perfectly safe. And he said, yes. And uh, Sir George Adam Smith said, but there's no door. And the shepherd replied, I am the door. He would lay down there every night in front of the door and no one, no you know, predator could come in and no sheep could go out. So Jesus changes the picture here of him being the shepherd who goes in to lead his sheep out to now he's the door to the sheepfold that he's leading them into. Now, a door is a way of entrance or access. We all know that. And what Jesus is saying here is no one enters Jesus' flock but through him. And Jesus says here, I am the door of the sheep. He doesn't say, I am a door of the sheep. And by the way, today, nobody cares if you say Jesus is a door. Nobody cares if you say that. Nobody, that won't bother anybody in our culture. When you say Jesus is the door, then immediately people are angry and they're hostile. You know, you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, so on. But, I mean, Jesus said this a lot. You know, he said, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Many there be who find it. Narrow is the gate, narrow is the path that leads to life. Few there be who find it. And later on, one of the other I am statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Later on in the book of Acts, Peter, when he's preaching, said there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You go all the way back in the Old Testament. There was one door into the ark. Uh, there was one door into the tabernacle, into the way uh, to approach God. Um, on and on as you go through Scripture, there's this idea of, of exclusivity. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to I am the way, the truth, and the life, but many people are universalists today. They think everyone will be saved. Some people are inclusivists, and they would say that people can be saved other than knowing about Christ, 
through his death. His death's credited to them even if they don't know about it. And then there's exclusivism, which teaches that the only way to God is through Jesus. You know, it's interesting, 26% of those identifying themselves as born-again Christians agree with the statement, it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. It's 26%. Well, and there was one uh, survey not long ago where 57% of evangelical church attendees believe many religions can lead to life. 57%. Um, Henry, I think I'm saying his last name correctly, Henry Nowen or Nowen. He's a well-known Roman Catholic scholar. He says, I personally believe that while Jesus came to open the door to God's house, all human beings can walk through that door whether they know about Jesus or not. Now, that's inclusivism. Today, I see it as my call to help every person claim his or her own way to God. That's his mission, help everybody find his or her own way to God. I know this is kind of an older story, but it, there, there's kind of a backstory to it I'll tell you in a moment. But several years ago, Joel Osteen was interviewed by Larry King, and I saw this live at the time. It was one of the most shocking things I'd seen up to that time in a while. Uh, Larry King was talking to, to Joel Osteen, the pastor of the largest church in America, and he asked Joel Osteen, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? And Osteen said, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. And he says, but if you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? And by the way, they, they, he asked him at one point, will an atheist go to heaven? He said, well, I really don't know. And when he asked him about uh, people believing in Christ, he said, well, I don't know if, 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 if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe, but I just don't think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know about the, all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity. So I just don't know. Notice he just keeps saying that. I know for me what the Bible teaches. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. But it goes on, and you know. He, but what was fascinating that night when I watched it, you know, Cheryl sometimes hears me in there talking to the television, you know, saying things to people. Like, what are you talking about? You know, or some show. She comes in there. What's going on? And I said, I said the sad thing here tonight is Larry King knows more about what Christians believe than Joel Osteen does. Larry King kept kept pressing him and said, "But don't you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? You know, doesn't the Bible say that?" I mean, it was like, you know, he, he was the one, and he realized the inconsistency of claiming uh, that there's another way to God than through Christ. Now, what's interesting about this whole story is, uh, at this time when I'd seen that on television, I'd been uh, doing some work with a guy named John E. Walvard. Now, a lot of you know the name John Walvard, Dr. Walvard, who was president at Dallas Seminary. He was John F. Walvard. His son's John E. Walvard. After Dr. Walvard died, John E. Walvard and I got to be close friends and worked on some writing and some things together. And at that time, um, he, he had a large marketing company uh, that marketed a lot of different Christian ministries, a huge, huge business he had. And one of his clients was Joel Osteen. So he and I got together about two weeks later. We met down at the Waterford. We were talking about some, some things we were working on together. And I asked him, I said, uh, you represent Joel Osteen, right? I said, what in the world was that about the other night on Larry King? He goes, oh, man, that was a, 
that was bad. He goes, man, he got emails from all over the place, everywhere, had to come out with a big apology. But here's the thing about, this is interesting, and I've not told this story before, and if John E. Walberg doesn't want me to tell it, I guess it's too bad. I'm telling it right now. But he told me that he called Joel Osteen and said, Joel, you've got to do something because that's what you really believe. I, I can't work for you anymore. I can't help you anymore. And Joel Osteen had John E. Walverd write the retraction for him because he didn't have enough theological uh, acumen to even know how to state it all correctly. So John, Walverd, John E. Walverd wrote this thing for him and tried to help him get out of that big jam that he was in and all that. And I asked John, I said, you're going to keep working with him if you've got to write this for him to, to tell him about us? He said, well, we'll see. Well, not long after that, I don't think he was working with him anymore. But notice the exclusivity of this. I am the door of the sheep. Now, down in verse uh, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me. Now, those words through me are really emphatic in the Greek, and it could be translated by me. That's the way a lot of translators put it. A lot of people would say what he's saying, I am the door if anyone enters by me. In other words, the only way to enter is for, for Christ to enable you to enter. You don't just enter through him, but you enter by him, that he's the one that enables us uh, to enter into salvation. And so these statements are clear that Jesus is the gateway to God, that he's the gateway to glory. He's the door to heaven, he's the door to eternal life, and he's the only door to God. And he goes on down here and he says, uh, I came, he says uh, in verse uh, 9, if anyone enters through me, he'll be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, to me, this is one of the most clear, beautiful statements that you could give anyone about the gospel. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's the simplest, clearest statement you can possibly make. But then he says, and they shall go in and out and find pasture. Going in and out here kind of just is the idea of carrying on your life. Now, it doesn't mean you're going in and out of salvation. Uh, that's not what it means um, because you go on down to chapter 10, verse 27. It says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So he's not talking about going in and out of salvation. He's talking about your, living your life. And he, what he pictures here is free, secure movement, nothing restricting or cramping the life of those who enter into Christ's fold. They're coming out of the, the, the man-made restrictions of the fold of Judaism. And Jesus said, when you come to me, you go in and out and you find pasture. There's freedom in Christ. Now, freedom doesn't mean freedom to disobey God. Our, our freedom is circumscribed by, uh, by God's law as well as by our relationships with other people. But Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, some take that to just simply mean that if you come to Christ, you get eternal life. You get abundant life or full life, which is eternal life. And I think that's certainly true, obviously. But I think in this context, the abundant life is a life that is shepherded by Jesus. That's the abundant life. The abundant life is a life where we are shepherded by Jesus. And tragically, so many people today and so many believers are missing the abundant life because they're not allowing the Lord Jesus to shepherd them and to guide them. And they think that the door into Christ's fold, if you, they think if I really let Christ shepherd my life, then I'm going to be restricted. 
And they don't realize that, that the key to a, a full, uh, 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 unlimited life is actually to be shepherded by uh, the Lord Jesus. It's tragic how many people think, man, if I give my life over to the Lord, it's going to be restricted and narrow and all those kinds of things. They don't know that Jesus says, you come to me, you go in and out, live your life, and you can find pasture, satisfaction, fullness. Well, the significance of this is very simple tonight. I mean, salvation is as simple as walking through a door. And Jesus speaks in the the simplest, clearest terms possible. There's no clearer statement, I think, of salvation anywhere in the New Testament. Yet people try to complicate it. I like what Dan Doriani says. He says, notice that Jesus says He is a door, not a wall. We don't climb a ladder of achievement or scale to height to enter it. Jesus says that those who try to enter this way don't belong. And He says, nor is Jesus a ticket booth so that one may enter by paying money or doing good deeds or performing religious rituals. Jesus is not a long, winding passageway so that one must complete a lifelong quest or follow a path laid out by worldly priests with the hope of someday arriving to God's favor. Jesus is the door, and those who enter by simple faith are immediately received into everlasting life. That's the the clear, true a simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe and we embrace and that we want to share with other people. There's a story about uh, Harry Houdini, the great escape artist. Now, some people claim this story isn't true. It first appeared in recent times in a book by Zig Ziglar. So um, I don't know if Zig found it somewhere or not, but it's a good story. Um, if it's not true, it's still a good story, and it kind of represents what, what uh, uh, Houdini was all about. But Houdini would always issue a challenge wherever he would go. Um, he could be locked in any jail cell in the country, he would say, and in short order, he could get out. And he always kept his promise. He always got out of any jail cell they'd put him in. But one time something went wrong. He enters this jail, they put him in this cell in his street clothes, and these heavy metal doors shut behind him, and he took a piece of strong, uh, flexible metal from his belt, and he set the work immediately, but something was unusual about this lock, and for 30 minutes he worked on it, and he got nowhere. An hour passed, and still he'd not opened the door, and by now he's just bathed in sweat, just panting in exasperation, but he still couldn't pick this lock. And finally, after laboring for two hours... Harry Houdini, the great Houdini, collapsed in frustration and failure against the door he couldn't unlock. When he fell against the door, it swung open. It had never been locked at all. But in his mind, it was locked, and all that time, he's trying to open this cell. And so those uh, people in that jail really pulled a fast one on old Harry Houdini, right? He'll leave it unlocked, and he'll go in there, work feverishly, and never get it open. But I like that story because the, the, the door to salvation, to heaven, to eternal life, to abundant life is available to all who will enter and the door isn't locked, it's open. And I love the fact that he says here, anyone uh, can come. I am the door. If anyone enters through me or by me, he'll be saved. I mentioned this story out Sunday in a couple, in one of the services or so. I'm not sure I mentioned it in all of them. But Donald Gray Barnhouse used to have a a powerful illustration of picturing the door, uh, the entrance to heaven like a large door. There's like a huge cross, and in that cross there's a door. And above the door on the outside is written, whosoever will may come. 
and you go through and you open the door and then you get on the other side into heaven and you turn around and look and it says chosen before the foundation of the world. And again, that's kind of both sides, if you will, in some ways of our salvation. But on the outside of the door, as Jesus has stated here, whoever will, let him come. If anyone will come, he'll be saved. Um, you know, uh, I've mentioned this to you all a lot of times. I read a psalm every day. Sometimes I read it in the morning. Generally, I read it at night. But uh, the psalm for today, this is uh, January the 23rd. I just started doing it at the beginning of the year again. Is the 23rd psalm. And so I was looking at that today, and I thought to myself, what a, what a, you know, providence or a coincidence. Here we are talking about the Good Shepherd. And again, you remember we did that study of Psalm 23 uh, a few months ago, and that first statement in there is the key, the Lord is my shepherd, a personal idea. He's my shepherd. And that's the key to all of this, that He's our shepherd, that we've entered in through the door of the sheepfold, and that Jesus Christ personally is our shepherd. And I know most of you here tonight, and I know you've accepted Christ, and He's your shepherd, but I would ask you this further question, is your life being shepherded by Jesus? Have you turned your life over to Him to allow Him to shepherd you, to guide you, to nourish you, to sustain you? That is the abundant life. People read this passage, you know, I come they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life in the context of this passage is a life that is shepherded by Jesus. And many of us here who've allowed, at least in some measure, the Lord to shepherd us, over, shepherd us over the years would say amen to that. That is the abundant life. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the simplicity, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel message. And we thank you for bringing us safely into your eternal sheepfold through faith in you and trust in you. Father, though I pray that as your sheep that we would go in and out and enjoy the, the wonder and the beauty of you sustaining us and caring for us and protecting us, and the freedom that we have in you, and the abundant life that we have in a life that's shepherded by our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here tonight who's not allowing the Lord to shepherd them, afraid what Jesus might lead them to do, where he might guide them, what he might ask them to do. I pray that those walls would come down tonight. We'd realize the only way that we can really have true life, abundant life, is by letting him shepherd us. Oh, Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus. May we follow him and live for him as our good shepherd, as the door to the sheep. We ask these things in his name. Amen.